the Buddha said, this spiritual life does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of moral discipline for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable liberation of mind that is the goal of the spiritual life, its heartwood and its end. I love this expression, this unshakable liberation of mind, or you could say this unshakable liberation of mind and heart that is the goal of our spiritual path. And what we've been studying the last couple of talks that I've given, and I'll continue tonight, are qualities of heart and mind, seven qualities of heart and mind that strengthen our capacity to know the truth deeply and to experience unshakable liberation of heart and mind. So these seven qualities are known as the seven factors of awakening. The first week we talked about mindfulness as the kingpin, as a uh, king of all seven qualities, the one that brings them together. And then last week we talked about the three energizing qualities of heart and mind investigation and effort and joyous interest. And tonight we're going to talk about the three calming factors of mind, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And we'll be looking at with all of these factors at at their essential role on the path to awakening. What we are attempting to do on our spiritual path and journey is to balance these energizing factors and these tranquilizing or calming factors. When they're in balance, that's when the mind uh, is clearest for being able to penetrate the truth, to see deeply. So whether we're doing insight practice or metta practice or Dzogchen practice or any practice, it's this balance between energy and calm that keeps the mind in optimal condition for um, our spiritual search, our spiritual path. So tonight we'll be talking about the calming factors and if we find that we're over-energized in our practice, then we can call on one of these three factors as a way to balance our practice. So the first of these factors tonight is calm or tranquility. Pasadi is a Pali word. And talking about this factor, I'll review the, what are the four tasks that the Satipatthana Sutra gives us for each one of these factors. If the tranquility awakening factor or any of the other factors is present, one knows the tranquility awakening factor is present in me. If the tranquility awakening factor is not present, one knows there is no tranquility awakening factor present in me. One knows how the unarisen tranquility factor can arise and how the arisen tranquility factor can be perfected by development. 
So basically, we notice if tranquility and calm are present. We notice if it's absent. We notice the causes and conditions that bring it around, bring it about. And then we notice what helps it to strengthen and continue. So when tranquility or calm is present, we feel non-agitation of the body and mind. We feel calm. Tranquility is an essential need of the mind, heart, and body, but it's one that our culture strongly un- underappreciates, which will not come as a surprise to all of you. A quality that our culture underappreciates along with rest and silence and solitude. One of my favorite manifestations of this is an interview that was done with Robert Iger, the CEO of Disney. It was in the New York Times. And they were interviewing him and they said, what are some things you do to manage your time more effectively? And Robert answers, I get up at 4.30 every morning. I like the quiet time. It's a time I can recharge my batteries a bit. I exercise and I clear my head and I catch up on the world. I read papers. I look at email. I surf the web. I watch a little TV all at the same time. I call it my quiet time, but I'm already multitasking. I love listening to music, so I'll do that in the morning, too, when I'm exercising and watching the news. Now, apparently, he said all that with no sense of irony. (laughs) Um, And it feels like it kind of fits with our society. (laughs) There's this, um, I would say that the the drug of choice in our society is stimulation, (laughs) agitation, that uh, we're... um, Most of us live lives that are filled with incessant activity. I remember when I was a child that Sunday was considered a day of rest. Well, that that has gone by the wayside. And need I mention the extension of shopping season into uh, Thanksgiving Day and, and things like that. I'm really quite curious how far we can take this as a culture. Um... To cultivate this quality of calm and tranquility, we need to go against the the flow of modern culture. It takes intentionality. It won't happen by accident. Tranquility is described as a feeling when one steps in the cool shade after being in the hot sun. Maybe in winter here we could say, It's the feeling a person has when they step into a warm sauna after being outside in the cold. A sense of uh, something in the body and mind letting go. A deep relaxation. And there's some sense of alignment that comes with it too. Alignment of resting in the body and the mind. 
it balances out the enlightenment factor of piti or joyous interest. And we start to understand one way that calm develops is we start to understand that too much joy without tranquility is actually unpleasant. It's agitating. So this is how uh, tranquility is when it's present. And when it's absent, we feel restlessness and agitation and, and we can't see clearly. Unsettledness. The proximate cause of tranquility arising is, well, the proximate cause of all of the factors of awakening is frequently giving careful attention. Last week I talked about this meaning giving careful attention to our moment-to-moment experience and practice a continuity of mindfulness, which definitely does ripen these factors. But we can also talk about this in the sense of when tranquility is present, giving careful attention to that factor's presence. Mindfulness of wholesome states increases them. So when we notice calm, we notice tranquility, the very noticing is a way of strengthening that quality. So when you feel calm or tranquility, don't overlook it. Notice it. Notice what it feels like. In the commentaries, some proximate causes for tranquility include suitable food, suitable weather, and suitable posture and living conditions. The weather one is kind of interesting. We'll just let that one be for the moment. But the other two point towards general lifestyle issues. Suitable living conditions. How are we living? Are our living conditions suitable for developing tranquility? Are there changes that we can make in our living conditions that will encourage the arising of tranquility? Is our life lived at a frantic pace that makes calm nearly impossible? Renunciation and Simplicity, then, could be a support for tranquility or calm. I know that at one point in my life, I cut out a lot of socializing from my life. That really wasn't nourishing. It basically was just filling the time and uh, created a sense of busyness that didn't give me time for just simply being. I've heard, uh, I heard Deepama recommending the same thing to my teacher many years ago, that, that she socialized less. Now, I'm not saying you all have to become extreme introverts, but it is interesting to notice uh, what level of socializing is helpful for us, is truly nourishing. Another thing I do is I schedule unscheduled days into my calendar. It's a little bit of an oxymoron, I guess, uh, but I do. I I make sure that I have um, hopefully a couple days a week that are fairly unscheduled. Now, if you have a nine-to-five job five days a week, that might be difficult, but you could schedule uh, 
periodic days of mindfulness on the weekend where you don't schedule things and leave a sense of openness. I make it a priority to have enough time in my life that there's room for this quality of calm and tranquility to manifest. And there's something about leaving that space and developing this quality of tranquility that allows a kind of maturing in the mind. It's like it allows space for the mind to process or deepen or It needs the space. If there's too much activity, um, the mind can't do that. It can't do its own um, maturing in that way. For me, one condition that really supports tranquility is being outside in nature or practicing in nature. I think many people find this, that, that there's something about being outside um, that our nervous systems come to rest in a certain way, like that's where we came from. Some people from the city may find that it takes a little more um, acclimating. It's why many people like to come to the forest refuge. It's so beautiful here. We're surrounded by woods and trees and sun and coyotes and fox mosquitoes, many things. When I lived in Madrid, even if we do live in a large city, when I was 20, I haven't lived in a large city for a long time, but when I was 20, I lived in Madrid. And um, I, would, I would try to find some green spaces. I would find parks, even just little ones, even at busy intersections. But I would find parks, and I would just go and sit there and be quiet, just kind of absorb life around me, watch life around me. I heard of some, maybe there were kind of performance artists, I'm not sure, but they, in New York City, they created a park in a, in a parking space. They like put a park bench and some plants and everything and they opened it up for people and people loved it. <laughs> so, so you have to be creative maybe if you live in a big city, but I try to spend an hour a day in the woods, minimum. Often an hour and a half or two hours. It's very supportive for my practice. And I know many of you feel the same way. And speaking of nature, I think trees are really supportive for this quality. This, uh, the trees, um, if you get around trees a lot, they have such a rooted uh, sense to them very stable and calming. And with trees, we can like tune into a quality of time that's so different from the fast-paced culture that we live in. The Buddha often sent monks and nuns to meditate under trees. There may not have been a lot of alternatives, I'm not sure. It might be because the trees were protective and shady. I'm not sure, but it might have been just because trees are They have great energy. Other 
proximate causes of tranquility or calm, balanced effort, definitely. We have to notice if the effort that we're making in our practice is actually agitating the heart and mind. This happens when we over-effort or we're striving or there's, a, there's a, an agenda or some kind of wanting in the mind, some kind of leaning into what's happening or what we want to have happen. So we learn to settle back into our experience rather than chase after it. And we start to learn that subtle energy. What is that energy that we're leaning into our experience? Sometimes it's so much the um, water that we swim in that we don't see it. And then when we do, we start to learn, oh, what is that energy and what is it to really settle into the moment and allow tranquility and calm to develop out of that settling into the moment rather than going out after it. Krishnamurti said, when the mind is still, tranquil, not seeking any answer or solution even, neither resisting nor avoiding, It is only then that there can be a regeneration. Because then the mind is capable of perceiving what is true. And it is the truth that liberates, not our effort to be free. So that regeneration and that ability to see what's true when we can settle into the moment. I haven't seen this one in the sutras or the commentaries, but I was thinking this evening as I was getting ready to give the talk, I tried to judge what my energy level is and whether I need uh, chamomile tea or green tea. So the right amount of caffeine seems like it might be a great causative condition for, for tranquility to rise. Sometimes in our practice we need more energy, so we might have a little caffeine, but if we have too much caffeine, it's hard to be calm. And some people find that on retreat that our need for caffeine actually decreases. I know that's true for me. And that um, I usually, in my daily life, have a cup of tea every morning. So on retreat, then it'll go to green tea, and then it'll go to bancha tea as, uh, as uh, um, the need for stimulation uh, drops or the need for energy. Energy energy from the practice is uh, stronger. Another quality that, or another factor that can be a proximate cause of tranquility is facing our demons, so to speak. If there are mind states or experiences that we have considered unacceptable or not been able to hold, that we've cut off from or dissociated from, uh, these will cause a sense of agitation in the mind and the heart. 
We can't really skip this part. We can suppress unwanted mind states, but the agitation and the effort that it takes to keep these dissociated experiences or emotions down um, will cause agitation in the mind and heart. And at times in the quiet of retreat, we will see that old memories or strong emotions will emerge, parts of the human experience that we have not yet been able to assimilate. And we practice meeting these experiences with a kind-hearted awareness. And we can feel the relief then when we turn towards something difficult and say, yes, this is true, this is what's happening. Often after a period of, I don't like the expression working with, being with, after a period of being with difficult emotions or uh, memories, uh, we will often find that that's followed with a period of greater calm or tranquility in our practice. Like no longer needing to expend a kind of agitated energy keeping that at bay, the mind and the heart settle. Well, I've had the experience, and I bet some of you have too, where you're sitting and you're trying to be calm, (laughs) trying to keep the mind focused on the breath, or just trying to be calm. And when I finally see and admit that I actually don't feel calm, that what is happening is agitation, then the mind and heart calm down. It's quite interesting. So calm can come from this meeting the truth of the experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, but from settling with the truth of what's happening. Or letting go of resisting the truth of what's happening. So let's move on to concentration as an enlightenment factor. Concentration has the characteristic of non-distraction. And at times I prefer the word non-distractedness because sometimes we hear the word concentration and we may automatically think the connotation for many of us with this word is one of somehow closing down or forcing some kind of focus. Like, concentrate on your homework, right? So non-distractedness, that word can help us to access a little bit more the easeful quality that's needed for deep concentration or for access to concentration. There are two major kinds of concentration. One kind is concentration on a single object, like the breath, or a mantra, a candle flame, one of the Brahma Viharas, like metta. So we choose a single object and we just keep coming back to that object. The other kind of concentration is called momentary concentration which is non-distractedness with changing objects. So we're with the flow of experience as it changes, 
and we're able to connect with these continue these uh, these moments one after another. So it's not um, the same kind of single focus concentration, but it's still non-distractedness. We still um, are present over and over. Vipassana meditation, as it's taught in the West, usually does some combination of these two. So there's this use often of an anchor or a single object for the stability and focus that comes from that. So often the breath, um, some people use hearing, some people use touch points in the body or the whole body, but this object that we can keep coming back to when we find that we are distracted, that we're not experiencing non-distractedness, but we're actually experiencing distraction. However, with Vipassana meditation, even though we're coming back to a single focus, we are seeing the changing nature of that object. So there's some of the momentary concentration within that. So with the breath, we are feeling the beginning of the in-breath, middle of the in-breath, beginning of the out-breath, the changing sensations during the in-breath, the changing sensations during the out-breath. So there's this quality of paying attention to change and there's also that 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 focused uh, sense on one thing when the mind is stable we open up the awareness we don't uh, stay with the anchor we open up the awareness and we're just with changing objects So that's momentary concentration, able to stay with changing, the changing experiences and the heart-mind stream, another way of saying it. Concentration manifests as stillness. It said it's like the flame of a candle that is lit in a place where there's no wind blowing. Even if it's momentary concentration, this kind of concentration that, that uh, is with change, with changing experiences, there's still a sense of stillness in the mind. And it's pleasant, it's very pleasant, this sense of stillness, we tend to like it. It's said with concentration, mindfulness sticks to the object in the same way as something tacky sticks to the wall, like cooked spaghetti. It's one of the tests that spaghetti's cooked is you throw it to the wall and it sticks to it. Concentration sticks in the same way to the object. It's said that the unconcentrated mind is like flour in the wind. It scatters all over the place goes here and there, and that the concentrated mind is like flour mixed with water. It sticks together. That's that sticking together quality of mindfulness or of concentration, you could also call that like a sense of unity. And this is a very healing sense. Unity coming together.
Concentration also adds power to mindfulness. Sometimes the analogy is used of a river with one channel instead of many. So we have that unification of mind with concentration. It's like one channel, more powerful. The water is going to be more powerful than if it's dispersed in many channels. In this way, concentration sometimes can be likened to uh, a laser microscope. Again, that focusing quality and that a laser microscope helps us to see in greater detail and with more clarity. If the mind is too distracted, we can't see clearly. If it's focused, we see much more clearly. In insight meditation, the purpose of concentration is to access this power to develop wisdom and insight. So basically to access this this focused power of mind to see the arising and passing away of phenomena in more and more detail, or greater clarity. There have been debates for a long time over what level of concentration is needed to do this insight practice. Some insist that we need uh, jhanas or absorptions, that we need to have practiced jhanas or absorptions in order to do effective insight meditation. And others like Mahasi Sayadaw from Burma, the first tradition I was trained in, believe that the moment-to-moment concentration that we develop in insight meditation can be developed to a level strong enough for deep insight and freedom. Richard Shankman recently wrote a book called Samadhi. That's the Pali word for concentration. And in the second half of the book, he interviewed 20 modern teachers, about 20 modern teachers from both the West and the East, about this question. And they gave the full range of responses to you must have very strong jhana first before you do insight to don't even think about jhana <laughs> and everything in the middle. So, um, yes, lots of opinions here. Um, what is inarguably true is that for the deepest practice to, uh, you could say, pierce the veil of delusion, we do need fairly strong concentration. It really adds clarity and depth to insight practice. Now we may hear this and feel like, okay, the next sitting I'm going to work on my concentration. I'm going to concentrate my mind. And then we strive to become concentrated. And then we get frustrated, right? Because if there's a lot of wanting present, we actually don't get concentrated. Wanting is... Uh, agitates the mind. So if we can't get concentrated with willpower, what are the proximate causes of concentration? What does help it arise? I remember being surprised the first time I heard this proximate cause of concentration, happiness. That a happy mind 
and heart concentrate more easily. So what makes the heart feel happy? That's a good question. Sometimes in our practice, if the heart and mind feel depressed or um, discouraged, we may need to find ways to uplift the heart and mind. And that will help the concentration to deepen. may need to go out and sit with a tree for a while or smell the snow falling or find something that refreshes the heart and mind. What makes the heart feel cheerful, refreshed? Another traditional cause for happiness in our practice is the absence of remorse. So keeping good sila, or having our commitment to sila or non-harming be very strong this, this, this quality of sila or this practice of sila comes up for a lot of the factors of enlightenment. And in this case, when we're talking about concentration, what we see for ourselves is that if we're acting in ways that cause harm and that our inner, you could say that our inner moral conscience knows is not the way we want to be or the way that... Um, is helpful to be. The mind gets turbulent, the heart gets turbulent. We come here, we sit down, we start remembering all those things, right? It's a natural part of practice. I've gone through several cycles in my um, practice where I'll go through periods where I'll just remember all the things I did that weren't skillful. They don't even have to be big, but they come up again because we've planted those seeds, right? And then when we see these, these things, this is really good because it actually uh, deepens our commitment to non-harming. And then that deeper commitment, we take more care with our actions, and then um, we have this absence of remorse, or what the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness, or the happiness of a clear conscience. And on the other hand, too, we often can remember, reflect on kind or generous acts that we did and see that um, those make our mind happy or lighter. It lightens the mind and helps with concentration when we're kind and generous and, and uh, follow the inner compass of compassion or the inner sense of um, the wish to do things in this world that bring about happiness for ourselves and others. Another cause and condition for the arising of concentration is moment-to-moment mindfulness, so continuity of mindfulness. And most of you have heard of this. Uh, there's, a, there's a mindfulness while we're in the sitting posture, the mindfulness while we're in the walking posture, and then there's the mindfulness that we hopefully continue through all of um, our activities here. Some thread of it, it may not be as strong, but that continuity helps uh, concentration to develop quite a bit. 
I remember one of the first times on my long first uh, retreat many years ago, uh, one of the first times I had a sitting where I sat down and it felt like the practice was um, effortless and there was a, you know, just this natural concentration that was easy and just happening. And I went in and reported it to my teacher and he said, what were you doing before that, before that sitting? And I said, well, I was walking and then I walked up the stairs mindfully and I went to my cushion and I sat down mindfully and there was this continuity, right? It led to the deepening of concentration. And then there's the continuity or the the deepening of concentration through the willingness to let go of the stories in the mind. The fantasies, the worries, the the, um, papancha, the proliferation. So we have that moment, right? We're sitting here, we have that moment, we wake up, we know that we're thinking, what do we do? Do we say, well, actually, I'm kind of enjoying this. I think I'm going to think a little bit longer. Or um, do we have some commitment to letting it go, coming back to the simplicity of the present moment right here, right now? This is our main addiction, is thinking, letting go of thinking. Now, this doesn't mean uh, taking a baseball bat to the thoughts or, or um, again, clamping down on the mind. I know that when I first started meditating, I thought that's what it meant. I thought I wasn't supposed to think. I was trying hard not to think, and I was quite frustrated with myself. <laughs> Finally, I went into an interview with, I was, Sharon was one of my teachers then, and I went into an interview with Sharon, and I was like, oh, I'm such a bad meditator. Think all the time. And she's like, you know, you can't control if you go off into thought. I was like, you can't? She's like, no, you just have that moment of choice when you wake up. Are you going to indulge or are you going to let it go? I was so relieved. I was like, oh, okay, I can do that. I can let it go. In fact, that first retreat, I took a a commitment to never voluntarily follow a thought, like at the beginning of that retreat. And I only broke it once in that whole retreat that I actually chose to keep thinking about something. Now, sometimes you might be aware of thinking and you might get sucked right back into it, but consciously choosing to think, I only did it once. It was so helpful for my concentration. It takes some renunciation, right? Can we renounce our fascination with the stories in our mind? Or our need to figure it out through thinking? Great place to take a look. And again, please understand that this doesn't mean some kind of forceful clamping down on the mind. Nope. Mm-mm. But can we let the stories go, come back to the breath, come back to sitting, come back to the footstep? Can we be interested in that whole process? That's renunciation, that inner renunciation.
And then a certain kind of outer renunciation helps uh, concentration to um, these the centers set up for that, the kind of silence and um, the fewer distractions and putting away our electronic devices and not having contact with the outside world, all of that uh, greatly helps with concentration. Concentration is fickle. If it gets a lot, if the mind gets a lot of stimulation, um, it's naturally going to be more distracted. And so the conditions here are really meant to support the development of concentration. And as much as possible, taking advantage of those conditions. Really simplifying our lives while we're here. All right, let's move on to the last enlightenment factor of equanimity. Equanimity manifests as a state of balance in the heart and the mind especially in regards to the six senses, so to the experiences through the sense doors that are arising in our experience. The psychologist Roger Walsh describes it like this. The capacity to experience provocative stimuli fully and non-defensively without psychological disturbance A little fancy there, but but there's this sense of um, openness. So experiencing life fully and non-defensively. Openness, engagement. So it's not detachment or indifference. It's engagement. Detachment and indifference are pulling back. They may look like a equanimity, but they're not. Engagement with non-defensiveness, so non-reactivity, you could say. So a kind of emotional steadiness regardless of circumstances. So it's a mind of great ease and comfort and a deep kind of calm happiness. As it strengthens, a a deep sense of peace pervades the heart and the mind and the body. It's a kind of happiness, you may say, that gets quieter and quieter. We find that this deep sense of peace is preferable to even the subtle agitation of what we conventionally call happiness. And as it deepens, it has this greater and greater quality of unconditional acceptance of the way things are. The Buddha called it the highest kind of mundane happiness because of this unconditional quality, this quality of independence or non-dependence on circumstances. So it's this 
free kind of uh, happiness because it's not dependent on circumstances being pleasant or not being unpleasant. When equanimity is strong, there's an absence of wanting and aversion in the face of the changing circumstances of life. It's a radical acceptance of what's happening. Eckhart Tolle, in his book, A New Earth, talks a little bit about Krishnamurti and this quality. He says, Krishnamurti, the great Indian philosopher and spiritual teacher, spoke and traveled almost continuously all over the world for more than 50 years, attempting to convey, through words, that which is beyond words. At one of his talks in the latter part of his life, he surprised his audience by asking, do you want to know my secret? Everyone became very alert. Many people in the audience had been coming to listen to him for 20 or 30 years and still failed to grasp the essence of his teaching. Finally, after all these years, the master would give them the key to understanding. This is my secret, he said. I don't mind what happens. Equanimity. So when equanimity is present, there's a sense of deep peace. And when equanimity is absent, when it's not present, there's a sense of reactivity and agitation in the heart and mind. Wanting things to be different than the way they are. When equanimity is absent, we feel at the mercy of the vicissitudes of life, the ups and downs in life. There's a sense, you could almost say, of exhaustion with uh, reactivity to the ups and downs and the changing circumstances of life, the loss and gain, the pleasure and the pain, all of it. There's no rest without equanimity. And in many ways, that's one of the deepest things that we want is a sense of rest. Equanimity is profoundly restful because we're not expending energy in resisting the way things are. I read something recently in a National Geographic. Mosquitoes might be able to teach us a little bit about this. Apparently, in terms of weight, a raindrop on a mosquito is like a car on a human. And the little suckers get hit every 25 seconds in heavy rain. How do they survive? By not resisting said Georgia Institute of Technology Engineers. So apparently what happens when a raindrop comes and it hits a, a mosquito, they don't resist. They just go along with it and then they, they kind of slide out from under it. So they don't get squashed because they don't resist. Maybe we can be the same way with life, that uh, 
It's the resistance that squashes us. <laughs> and with equanimity, we learn this non-resistance to the way things are, to go with the flow, the flow of life. So one way that we develop equanimity, our approximate cause of it arising, is to be aware of reactivity when that's what's present in the heart and the mind. We would like to be able to will equanimity, but it doesn't work that way. We can't make equanimity be present. And if we try to pretend that we're equanimous when we aren't, that doesn't work so well either. It's not a should. Equanimity is not a should. I should be equanimous. I call this spiritual correctness when we have this sense of how we should be because we're spiritual practitioners and then try to make ourselves fit that. And we'll do this with equanimity sometimes. It doesn't work. Equanimity is not a should. It's an ongoing exploration of what brings the deepest happiness or rest in the heart and mind. And we have to start where we are, start with what is really happening in the moment. So if reactivity is present, wanting or aversion, then that's where we start. Can we be equanimous with that experience? Radical equanimity. Can we be okay when, even when equanimity isn't present? It's the truth in that moment of the how things are. Exploring deeply the nature of wanting and not wanting, of wanting and aversion or of reactivity, that uh, leads to equanimity. They're such powerful energies, we have to get to know them. They have incredibly convincing stories when they're present. If I don't get another cookie after lunch, I think I'm just not going to make it. If this pain doesn't go away, I'll go crazy. I must have the cookie. I must get rid of this pain. But when we look clearly, when we turn our mindfulness to wanting and aversion, we see that uh, we don't have to believe the stories. They begin to lose their power. We see that aversion arises and it passes away. They're impermanent. We start to be able to see through the story. It's like those energies become uh, more transparent and less opaque. When, when we first work with them or when it's strong, they're very um, opaque. You can't see through them. We believe them. We get caught in them. I've been enjoying this exploration in the last year. I I used to have some chocolate after lunch every day, and I don't any longer. And um, at first, because I was so used to doing that, I'd be done with my lunch, and the mind would want chocolate, right? So wanting chocolate would come up. Just watch it. It arises, and after a while, the wanting goes away. Maybe later it arises again. It goes away. 
But when it first arises, if we're not mindful, we actually believe we must have chocolate after lunch. (laughs) So convincing. Perhaps we'll have time to talk about this more tomorrow morning, but notice, or the next uh, Wednesday morning, noticing the chain of conditioning that leads to reactivity can also be helpful. So noticing Vedana and uh, feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. What happens when we're not aware of Vedana? What happens when we are aware? That can be a great place for exploration, helping us to develop equanimity. But finally, uh, deepening our understanding of the truth of impermanence is a cause and condition for equanimity to develop. Because seeing deeply the truth of impermanence, seeing deeply that, that all things change, leads to disillusionment. In the best sense of that word, the spell that, that, that something, that this thing that's happening right now, that if we can control it, we'll be happy, breaks that spell. And that disillusionment leads to uh, dispassion or letting go in the mind and the heart, letting go of clinging. You could say that equanimity is an understanding that we live in a world that will never be perfect. I was sitting in the woods yesterday near my house, so I, I like to walk in the woods and I like to sit, sit in the woods too. And um, I was sitting in this place and these pine needles were dropping from the trees and landing on the forest floor. Just a lovely sound. And then a little ways away, there was a chainsaw. Somebody was cutting down trees. And I just watched my mind, what it did with these two different experiences, the pleasant experience of the pine needles falling on the floor and the unpleasant experience of the chainsaw sound. And experimenting, can the mind and heart be big enough to hold both these experiences, the pleasant and the unpleasant, Can the mind and heart be accommodating and flexible? So useful in this world of constant change, where there's so much that we can't control. This ongoing stream of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral experiences. Another uh, support for equanimity can be little mantra-like koans that we might say to ourselves. So one of my favorites is, uh, this is the way things are right now. So if there's some resistance to what's happening, it's like, oh, this is the way things are right now. It helps, just helps me settle. It's like, oh, okay. All this energy resisting the truth, not worth it.
Or why am I not happy right now? And the answer isn't, oh, because I don't have another cookie. Uh, but, but looking a little more deeply, why am I not happy right now? Or is this particular moment okay? I use that one or have used that one a lot with pain or unpleasant physical sensations. We can get these wild stories going, all the reactivity. Is this particular moment okay? Often it's like, yeah, okay, this moment's okay. I can, I can hold it. And all of these are not to answer these questions, obviously, but to point back towards investigation, one of the other uh, factors of enlightenment, seeing for ourselves. Equanimity is said to be the doorway to Nibbana. Jane Hirschfield, a poet, she wrote, Equanimity is the base camp for the summit. I like that. As this quality deepens and matures, the heart and the mind are primed for Nibbana, the unconditioned. As this quality matures and we see more and more deeply the truth of Anicca, or understand more and more deeply the truth of Anicca and the corollaries of Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, then the insight that nothing whatsoever should be clung to grows and strengthens, and the mind and the heart let go and the deepest peace can be experienced. I want to end with a story, one of my favorite equanimity stories. It's from one of Sharon's books, Sharon Salzberg's book. Equanimity basically um, this is a story about Kempo Rinpoche, and really you can see the ripening of, or the very ripe quality of many of the factors of awakening in this story. One of my teachers, Nyosho Ken Rinpoche, called Kempo by his students, was one of the many thousands of Tibetans who fled their country in 1959 because of the Chinese invasion. In Tibet, Kempo had been a high lama and an heir to all the sacred teachings of Tibetan Buddhism. During a retreat he taught in the United States many years after he left Tibet, he began telling us the story of how he left his family behind, not knowing if he would ever see them again, and as he set out for India with about 70 other people. One night as the group traveled through the mountains, Chinese soldiers ambushed them. Only five people survived the attack and escaped on foot through the treacherous Himalayan passes to India. Soon after arriving, Kempo went to Calcutta and found a place to sleep in a Buddhist monastery. He spoke to us about begging for pennies on the streets of Calcutta just so he could have a cup of tea. It was heart-wrenching to hear Kempo speak about these traumatic circumstances, the Chinese persecution, the sorrow of leaving loved ones behind, the slaughter of his companions, the sheer physical brutality of the escape. The image of this teacher 
whom I loved so much, begging for pennies, deprived of all physical comforts, was overwhelming for me to hear. As I began to cry, I noticed that several other people in the room were also crying. Just at that point, Campo finished up his story of begging in Calcutta with the phrase, and I was very happy. My mind came to an abrupt stop. Very happy, did he say very happy? I could scarcely believe he had said that. The man was bereft, poverty-stricken, a refugee. How could he say he was very happy? As Kempo went on, he talked about being sustained through all these events and sudden turns of fate by the truth of the Buddha's teachings. He had gone from being an esteemed religious teacher in Tibet with great distinction and honor, addressing multitudes of spiritual aspirants, to finding himself suddenly begging in the hot streets of Calcutta surrounded by poverty and hopelessness. Then later on, he went from the crowds of India to the United States, where he was again received as a highly revered teacher. So many unexpected ups and downs. Who can describe them, Kempo said. Isn't life like a series of dreams within a vast dreamlike mirage? After his talk, my mind was still reeling. Every so often, if we are fortunate, we catch a glimpse of a quality of happiness or freedom in another human being that is not bound to conditions, that sustains them through extraordinary suffering. Campo's intense love and devotion for the Buddha's teachings had borne the fruit of this deep happiness right in the midst of his inconceivable challenges. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.